Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today we're talking about how best to communicate risk and uncertainty to cardiology patients. And I'm joined by Gabriel Reckia and Alexandra Freeman, who both work at the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge. I really hope you enjoy the show. It's an excellent discussion, I think. And hopefully you'll take away some pearls of wisdom and things that you can use to improve your communication with your patients. Thank you very much. Enjoy the show. So maybe I can start off by asking you two to introduce yourselves. What do you do and where do you work? Should we start with Alex? So I'm the executive director of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge. And I came to this position from a slightly roundabout career, which started with a doctorate in evolutionary biology and then a career making science and natural history documentaries. So my background is as a professional communicator, and we're quite a mixed team at the Winton Centre. We have professional communicators, we have professional psychologists and software engineers, as well as people from very diverse backgrounds within each of those careers to try and bring different perspectives to the problem of how to communicate numbers to people. And Gabe, how about you? Yeah, so I'm a research associate at the Winton Center, and my background is actually in cognitive science. I started out developing and testing computational models of memory, specifically looking at how people uh, understand individual words. So switching to how people understand numbers and risks was a little bit of a leap, but it's actually been a really good context to uh, test how people understand uh, different formats. So a lot of what I do at the Winton Center would probably be classified as UX research if I was doing it in industry, except that here what we really care about is things like comprehension, um, whether different ways of presenting information are easier or less easy for people to understand. And Alex, maybe you could give us an overview of what you actually do at the Winton Centre overall. What's the goal of the whole centre? Well, our little logo is to inform but not persuade. So what we're here to do is to try and help people understand numbers, especially if they've got important decisions to make on the basis of them. And that's in a whole range of fields. In medicine, trying to help doctors communicate evidence to patients. In law, trying to help legal professionals deal with forensic evidence in court. Uh, In policymaking, helping politicians and those making policy level decisions understand evidence and numbers and helping journalists communicate numbers in the news and in the headlines. And we also now have a little side project also on the communication of seismic risk. And you with some other co-authors have just written a piece for Heart, which is called Communicating Risks and Benefits to Cardiology Patients. And in there, quite early on, you mentioned the conclusions of a Supreme Court judgment at Montgomery versus Lanarkshire Health Board. Alex, can you tell us a bit about what that is and how it applies to communicating risk? Yes, this judgment came through um, shortly before the Winton Centre was founded, so in 2015. And it was the culmination of a very long legal process for a woman called Nadine Montgomery, who had taken Lanarkshire Health Board to court because of the brain damage that her son suffered during birth. And she had been concerned about the potential of a difficult birth, but her obstetrician hadn't revealed all the risks to her. And very sadly, one of those risks actually manifested during the birth. 
And understandably, Nadine Montgomery felt that she should have been informed about that risk and that it wasn't the doctor's position to make a decision about what risks should be considered important. And the Montgomery decision actually brought the law on informed consent in the UK more in line with the GMC's own guidelines in saying that a doctor really needs to have a dialogue with each patient in order to understand their needs for information and to try and provide information to them about the potential risks and benefits of the treatments that are on offer and of undergoing no treatment. And it defines material risks as instead of being something that's within the doctor's judgment, but something that a reasonable person in the patient's position would be likely to attach significance to. So it does require that dialogue and understanding of the patient's position. And from our perspective, what was really important as well is that it says this role will only be performed effectively if the information provided is comprehensible. The doctor's duty is not therefore fulfilled by bombarding the patient with technical information which she cannot reasonably be expected to grasp, let alone by routinely demanding her signature on a consent form. So this need for really understandable information and that um, that difficulty of understanding what a patient's perspective might be about every potential risk and every potential benefit of the options available to them is really what the Winton Centre's work in the medical sphere has been concentrating on. So it really does boil down to that concept of numerical literacy, doesn't it? And being aware of how numerically literate uh, the person in front of you is. It's not just about uh, presenting the facts in the same way to every single patient. Absolutely. But it's not just down to numerical literacy or health literacy. Every individual, all of us, understand and perceive risks in a different way, depending on how they're presented to us. So if I gave you um, information that said one in 10 people might suffer from this side effect, and I said 10% of people might suffer from this side effect, probably that would have a different impression, give a different impression to you. So mm. it's it's more about understanding all of our psychology and how subtle differences in the way that we present numbers can make a really profound difference in the perception of them. And once you understand the sorts of things that might influence people, then we always talk about trying to give information in as many different ways as possible in order to try and override some of those biases that are inherent in every way that we present numbers. And Gabe, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the survey that you mentioned in the paper, the survey of 12,000 people. Sure, yeah. We've we've been surveying people from 13 different countries about many different aspects of risk associated with COVID-19 specifically. And these surveys all used quota sampling. So they're stratified according to national quotas for age and gender for each country. So it's not quite true random sampling, but we at least know that our samples are broadly representative of the population in each country with respect to age and gender. And just to pick up on what you were saying about numeracy, there, it may come as no surprise to you that many people struggle with understanding numbers related to risk. So just to give you an example, um, one 
question we asked was, which of the following represents the biggest risk of getting a disease? One in 100, one in 1,000, or one in 10? And overall, one-sixth of participants answer this incorrectly. Uh, the specific proportion depends on the country. So for some countries, uh, the ones that were doing the best, around 10% of people got this wrong. For some, it was more than 25% of people getting this wrong. And things get even worse if we're talking about uh, really small percentages, like 0.1%. So less than half of people in the UK, for example, correctly identified that one out of 1,000 people corresponds to a value of 0.1%. About a quarter of people thought it corresponds to 1%. About a tenth of people thought one out of 1,000 people is 10%. Uh, the US uh, did even worse. So, and this is actually uh, among the higher educated respondents. So, our respondents were more highly educated than the UK or the US's on average. We know that because we ask about their educational background. And in our UK study, for example, 34% of our respondents had a bachelor's or equivalent, which is uh, more than you see in the population at large. So, doctors absolutely should not assume that everyone understands when they start talking numbers to their patients. And if some people do struggle with understanding numbers, especially relating to risk, could we use words instead? Gabe? Yeah, I think there's a role for those. Although, you know, after what I've just said, you might think I'd recommend doing away with numbers entirely and simplifying by using only words without numbers. So talking only in terms of high or low risk or saying this side effect is common or rare, these kinds of standard phrases. Um, I actually don't recommend that because these terms can mean very different things to different people. And I think uh, there's a study that gives a great example of this, a randomized controlled trial from Leeds, and they had 120 adults who were on statins, and they gave patients information about the side effects in different ways. And one of the possible side effects with one of these statins was pancreatitis. So 0.04% of people on this particular statin uh, tend to get pancreatitis, so the European Union would call that a rare side effect. Uh, now, what did patients think the risk was when they were told that the risk was rare and were not given any further information? They thought their chance of getting pancreatitis was 18%. And compared to a group of patients who were told the risk numerically, the group who was just told that it was rare thought that they were more likely to experience it. They thought that it would pose a greater risk to their health, and they were less satisfied with the information they had received. And this is something that has been seen more generally in other studies, when people are just told that a risk is rare, they tend to overestimate the, the size of that risk. So we do actually recommend communicating numbers, but some care has to be taken to do it in a way that people actually understand. And so we give some tips in the paper on how to go about that. So let's go into some of the, the tips. What recommendations do you have for, for communicating risks and also ways of uh, avoiding communicating risks that are misleading? Sure. So one thing that was done in that study when they communicated the risks numerically, and this also ties into what Alex was saying about uh, different ways of communicating numeric risks, is risk can be communicated both as a percentage and as a frequency. So Alex mentioned it sounds different to the year sometimes if you say 10% or one out of every 10 people. And on top of that, some people will understand both of those phrases other people will have uh, a better 
understanding of only one of those or the other. So we tend to recommend communicating in both ways, say this side effects occurs in 0.04% of people who take this medicine, or another way to think about that is it happens in four out of every 10,000 people. And that way, if one way doesn't make sense to someone, then maybe another way will. Uh, stating things as frequencies can be easier to picture and understand, but can sometimes make things seem a bit scarier with respect to small risks, just because it's easier to picture those four people who will have the side effect than the nearly 10,000 people who won't. So for this reason, we really recommend uh, communicating in both ways because both have advantages and disadvantages. Uh, a few other suggestions would be that in cases where timeframes might be ambiguous to a patient, it's really clear to be about, it's really important to be clear about timeframes, whether we're talking about something happening during an operation versus over the next year. Likewise, it's really important to be clear whether one is talking about a side effect that is only taking place during say the time that medication is administered, or if it's a longer term effect. This is something that we have seen a lot in our own qualitative interviews, people not quite understanding when they're told about side effects, which side effects actually are only things that they have to worry about during treatment and which actually might fall into the category of long-term harms or things that they would have to live with for a long time. Um, Another thing we didn't quite mention in the article, but many clinicians like thinking about things in terms of number needed to treat. How many patients would you need to treat in order for one person to respond? Patients really have a hard time understanding that, so we really tend not to recommend communicating that particular statistic at all. Uh, and finally, when one's point is to compare two risks, it can be really helpful to keep the denominators the same. So if you say that 15 out of 10,000 people experience uh, some particular side effect, uh, but 10 out of 10,000 people experience that even without the treatment, so 15 out of 10,000 versus 10 out of 10,000, that's a much easier comparison for people to make than the equivalent one out of X comparison, which in this case would be to say one out of 667 people versus one out of 1,000 people. As I mentioned earlier, some people are hard pressed to say whether one in 667 is even a larger risk or a smaller risk than one in 1,000. So one exception to that might be if the denominator is really small and easy to picture. So most people get that if something happens to one out of every three people, that's much worse than if it happens to one out of every 10 people. But if you've got a really large number in the denominator there, it can uh, get murky and difficult for people to understand. So those, those are some tips for ensuring that numbers are understood more accurately. No, brilliant, and they're really useful tips uh, for, for people to take on board. And what about expected frequency graphics? This is also something you mentioned in the article. Yeah, so visualizations in general can be extremely helpful. And there's a particular kind of graphic called expect frequency trees that are especially useful for conveying what happens in different scenarios. And these are basically branching tree diagrams that might show, for example, out of 100 people who make decision A, how many of these people experience some outcome of interest? Out of 100 people who make decision B, how many of those people experience that outcome? Uh, this can be really useful when talking about treatment pathways or treatment plans that have multiple steps. The NHS uses these for uh, 
screening pathways. And it's a really clear way of visualizing what can otherwise seem like a complicated set of numbers when they're expressed verbally. And sometimes really simple approaches are all you need. So if you want to show that, say, with a treatment, um, say 85% of people will survive. Without it, only 80% of people will survive. So 5% more people survive with the treatment. One effective approach can be simply to use a graphic with 100 tiny people or 100 tiny dots and put 80 of them in one color. So those are the people who survive either way and five of them in another color. These are the people who will survive due to the treatment. So visualizations like that are called icon arrays. Um, and I would I would classify those as a different kind of expected frequency graphic. You're showing the expected number of people who will survive in different circumstances. And uh, actually, the Risk Science Center at the University of Michigan has a website, iconarray.com, and that lets you easily generate this kind of graphic. So um, I've found that personally useful, and maybe some listeners would as well. Brilliant. And Alex, how best should we discuss uncertainty? Uh, uncertainty is a lovely topic. We have um, <laughs> we have a whole research program in uh, communicating uncertainty, and of course, there are so many types of uncertainty, especially when we're talking about uh, in uh, talking about medicine. You've got uncertainty about the future, and generally, people are very understanding about the fact that you can't possibly know what will happen in the future. But it does mean that you're communicating probabilities all the time, and that is quite tricky. But Still, being clear that, of course, we can't tell you what will happen to you, we're just going to give you the best uh, estimates that we can or, or refer to the past and say, well, out of 100 people like you in the past, this is what we've seen in trials. So future uncertainty, I think we know where we are with that. The problems come when we come to uncertainty about the present and the past. Because, of course, we don't know everything that could possibly be known. And quite often, we don't have very good evidence at all. And so, really, we break that down into two kinds of uncertainty. One is the kind of uncertainty that is quantified. So, your confidence intervals, your ranges around your estimates. And here we found that people are actually also very forgiving uh, about that kind of uncertainty. And, in fact, it can be useful to them to know what kind of... Um, what kind of uh, range there really is around the numbers you're giving them. So if it's really between five and 10 people, say, then give people that range, say between five and 10 people. And a lot of clinicians and a lot of uh, communicators worry that this is going to undermine people's trust in the evidence and trust in the number. But we haven't found evidence of that in our experiments so far. So we think we call it muscular uncertainty. Be confident about your confidence intervals. And then the other kind of uncertainty, of course, is the quality of evidence. So you might have got quite a precise or at least a range out of your randomized controlled trial, but maybe that trial was actually only in a relatively small number of people, or maybe it was a great trial, but it was in people who aren't like the patient in front of you. And so Actually, we found that patients are really interested in the quality of evidence and they ask a lot of questions about it when we give them the option. They want to know, how many people is this based on? Are these people people like me? Is there disagreement about the, sci about the interpretation amongst scientists? Because when people are making really life-changing decisions, 
They want to know how good the evidence is. And so again, be as upfront as you can be about the quality of the evidence and use your clinical judgment to guide people through it. Give them the, your impression of whether they might be higher or lower compared to the group that was studied in the, uh, in the trials or in the evidence that you've got in front of you. But generally, you can be more upfront about uncertainty than you might feel. And finally, Gabe, how should we discuss potential negative outcomes of, of treatments that we give? Yeah, so I suppose we've talked a bit about how to communicate the actual numbers, but there are some other things we highlight in the paper worth keeping in mind with respect to communicating the actual nature of the risk. So one thing we say there is that the language chosen should convey some sense of its severity and what it actually means for the patient. So one example actually from our editor, uh, Dr. Claire Coyle, pointed out that when she says to her patients that bleeding is a potential complication, uh, she sometimes has patients who assume this is just at the point where an incision is made and of a volume similar to if you cut your finger, but in the context where she's talking about that, she might be talking about bleeding that could be so significant that the patient becomes seriously unwell, unwell right? So mm. probably just using the single word bleeding is not quite enough to communicate that particular side effect. Um, that being said, it's also possible to go overboard when describing side effects. Uh, so describing what a side effect means for the patient, which is critical to do, does not necessarily mean trying to get them to imagine the side effect in great detail, right? There's lots and lots of research to suggest that really uh, vividly imagining scenarios associated with extreme negative emotions makes people feel that these scenarios are more likely than they actually are. And we don't want to induce nocebo effects, the kind of evil twin of the placebo effect, where for some outcomes, a patient is more likely to experience a negative outcome if they expect one. So uh, to really balance this we highlight, and of course, clinicians do this, spend time highlighting both the benefits of a treatment as well as the potential downsides. And of course, the benefits of a treatment can also be framed as potential harms of no treatment. So uh, there's uh, Dr. Mark Green, who is a neuro neurologist who is an expert on placebo effects. I know his recommendation is to remind patients that although there are potential harms of the treatment, there are also potential harms of having no treatment and to spend equal time on those, which I thought was an interesting way to frame the discussion of benefits versus risk. So the idea is you contrast risks of treatment with risks of no treatment and also contrast benefits of treatment with benefits of no treatment. So you can't only be talking about what will go wrong, you've got also to talk about what can go right. So that seemed to me a very val uh, very balanced way of covering all the bases, although, of course, time is limited in these consults, so uh, it's it's a difficult thing to imagine or to, to balance, and I fully understand that. But those are some things that we sometimes suggest when people have the time. And finally, guys, where can people go to find out more information about communicating risk? Maybe I can start on that one. Um, as Gabe says, this is a really difficult thing to do. Um, and we also know from uh, measuring the numeracy of medical students and clinicians that not all clinicians uh, fall into the high numeracy category themselves. In fact, half of them are classified as low numeracy by the, uh, the work that we've done. And so we know that uh, communicating risk in a short time space with a patient in front of you is really hard. 
And this, I think, needs to be part of um, clinical training because it's a really important skill and yet one that is very, very hard. So we've created uh, an e-learning course, which is freely available, and you can find it via our website. And uh, James, I hope you'll put the links to the website at the end of this. I will and indeed. It's also on the e-learning for healthcare platform if you're within the NHS and you want to make it part of your e-portfolio. Brilliant. Well, I want to thank you both very much indeed for your time today. And uh, I will point everybody to the article in heart and it'll be made freely available uh, for several weeks if it's not freely available already. But thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you.